You're listening to Impulse to Innovation. The Institution of Mechanical Engineers podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Helen Mees. As a global community of mechanical engineers with over 120,000 members in 140 countries, the Institution of Mechanical Engineers has been at the heart of the engineering profession since 1847. The Institution's mission is to improve the world through engineering by sharing the latest news, views and insight into the creative world of technology and the people that make it happen. Adapting industries to and preparing them for a warmer world will be essential for the future successful functioning of societies of all nations, said Dr Tim Fox, co-author of the IMACE's latest report on climate adaption, published in April this year. The report, entitled Adapting Industry to Withstand Rising Temperatures and Future Heat Waves, was produced in conjunction with the IMACE's process division and a plethora of leading climate change and sustainability experts from across the globe. While many engineers are working on technologies that will help mitigate the climate crisis itself, authors Dr Fox and IMACE policy advisor Dr Laura Kent believe that more should be done to prepare industry for future climate change-induced heat-related impacts. Their work demonstrates how increases in ambient temperatures and more frequent, severe, prolonged heat waves could have a devastating impact on industry and its workforce. They outline the urgent need for engineering-related standards and design codes to be based on expectations of future climate rather than past climate. Adaption solutions to be sustainable and result in net-zero greenhouse gas emissions and strategies to be developed to make workplaces and working practices comfortable and safe. I had the pleasure of speaking with Tim and Laura about the Climate Adaption Report and discussed with them their reasons for bringing together such an international team of experts to advise on its content, what adaption technologies engineers are developing and how, as a leading voice in policy, the IMACE could galvanise political change. Tim Fox is an internationally recognised expert in climate change mitigation and adaption, with specialist knowledge of clean energy, sustainable cooling, process engineering-based industries and sustainable food systems. He's a chartered engineer and fellow of the IMACE and the immediate past chair of the Process Industries Division. Tim represents the IMACE on the UK Infrastructure Operators Adaption Forum and is a member of the Adaption to Climate Change Group, a BSI committee. Dr Laura Kent joined the IMACE in June of 2022 as a public affairs and policy advisor. Prior to joining the institution, Laura held roles at the Government Office for Science and the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, working on policies and advice to support innovation in the UK. Before starting a career in policy, Laura was a scientist at the National Physical Laboratory. I began by asking Tim what his motivations were for producing this report. Tim and Laura, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, thanks very much, Helen. Yeah, it's an absolute delight to be here with Laura. Tim, 
As I mentioned in my introduction, you have had a long career in the environmental and energy sectors and and are recognised as a leading voice on engineering issues related to climate crisis. Can you share with us what the drivers were for the latest IMACI report on climate adaption and and what message you were hoping to impart in, in producing this piece of work? Yeah, um, to start sort of at the beginning, as it were, Helen, uh, I've been working in uh, climate change adaptation now for about 15 years. And um, when I started working in the area, um, there was very little interest in adapting society to meet the challenges of future climate change. Everybody was focused at that stage on reducing greenhouse gas emissions, Um, quite rightly, but um, it was it was clear that in addition to doing that, we were going to have to do something about uh, preparing society and adapting society uh, globally to the um, temperature rises um, and, and climate change that we will experience as a result of the emissions we'd already put in since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, sure. and and the um, you know the uh, emissions we were going to make as we were transitioning to a, a lower carbon future. And um, in recent years, uh, we've seen a, a, an uptick, really, in the amount of interest in adaptation. It's certainly uh, moved forward dramatically in, in the last five years. And I think that's really as a result of the fact that um, it's become increasingly clear that um, given the current policy commitments, we're not going to make the uh, one and a half degree uh, centigrade um, target set by the Paris Agreement in 2015, yeah. and um, possibly not the two degree target, um, uh, without some absolute radical transformation in in our policy landscape and um, and uh, uh, the pace and acceleration of that transition. So, sort of in in recognition of that reality, um, adaptation has has risen up the agenda, and. Um, in, in sort of in, in in terms of that as a background context, um, what we've seen is a, a lot of work on adaptation in the area of flooding. So you know, fl- fl- flooding has has had a very high profile, and I, and I think that's quite understandable when you when you see the you know you think about the public awareness of flooding. It, yeah. it has an immediate impact. It's very tangible. It, it happens quite quickly, often. And has you know quite devastating consequences for the for the people flooded and and the broad you know the broader sort of community and then and then nationally. So, in in countries all over the world, we've seen a, an increased focus on flooding and what we need to do about responding to that. Um, and and also um, some you know some some increased interest in the impact of uh, of uh, more intense storms, particularly hurricanes, t- typhoons, cyclones. Um, these kind of um, of extremes, but there's been very little attention paid to heat yeah. and to the impact of uh, of rising temperatures. So, specifically, um, the, the the rise in the seasonal ambient temperature, so the sort of the constant background temperature going up from year to year, um, you know, across the seasons, and then uh, more. Um, uh, more particularly, extreme heat events such as um, heat waves, and um, and 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 so 
really what um, what what, uh, what what I've been looking to do in recent years is to develop um, a much more focus on that area and to increase awareness and um, and our knowledge base on that. Now, within that area, there's been quite a bit of work on heat impacts on energy systems. You know, the energy sector has in many ways been leading the charge on on um, how we respond to uh, extreme heat on on the electricity distribution system, for example, yeah. and and electricity generation, particularly particularly in sectors like the the nuclear power sector, where there's uh, a large reliance on on cooling. Uh, from uh, coastal cooling waters or, or, or river waters, and um, you know the effect that temp- the raises in temperature, particularly in river waters, have on the ability of nuclear plants to cool themselves. So, quite a lot of work on the en- in the energy system, and a lot of work on buildings, particularly domestic buildings. And again, like flood- flooding, you can understand the focus on that. Yeah. Um, you know, from a public perspective, and, and and the wider built environment. And again. You know, a, a lot of that has been driven by the urban heat island effect, which we can probably come on to in detail later. But the, the fact that inner cores of cities are much hotter than the, the rural hinterland that surrounds them. Um, so quite a lot of work done over the years on that, but almost no work done on the impact on industry. And this was really um, of concern to me because – I wanted to highlight that um, you know, industry is 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 at the core of the sort of economic well-being of nations, all nations around the world that have that have industrialized or are industrializing, and you know it, it's really remiss of us as as a as a as a uh, broader profession not to have an understanding of what the impacts of um, future heat extremes and and this sort of slow but sure increase in seasonal temperatures will have on on the ability of industry to uh to uh um perform yeah. its role within society so when i became aware of, you know became aware of this uh, uh what is effectively a gap in our knowledge base and our awareness and and indeed in our, you know our professional practices as engineers I I I, uh, I I looked to fill that gap, and it and it, and that gap clearly filling that gap clearly aligns with the core role of the institution. Yeah. Of course. So um, you know, raising awareness, developing an evidence base, and um, improving professional practice is sort of at the core of what we do. And um, you know, the need to to uh, to raise this issue of, of what these um, impacts are going to be on industry aligned very well with that. So, um, so yeah, that was the background to uh, to the sort of core drivers of the report. Um, and uh, essentially, two years ago, we started the project, and um, you know, with with bringing uh, uh, Laura on board as a co-author to that um, to, to the report accelerated our activity in that area and so you know i'm pleased that we managed to uh, to publish that um, earlier this year yeah i i was at the the launch um event for for the report and and it was a uh, uh a fantastic opportunity to to hear the issues surrounding you know as you've rightly said we, we we there's a lot for us as engineers to think about isn't there in terms of how we address 
our working environments um, and and what we do to to try and adjust and and adapt to the the growing issues you know we don't want to be part of the problem essentially do we <laughs> we we need no. to be addressing it yeah absolutely and and i think it's um you, you know it falls upon us to uh, to raise awareness of um, of these issues both for the profession and and to government and to society more broadly when we become aware of of, of these issues and um and effectively um, to search for solutions that, um, that, as you say, don't make the situation situation worse. Yeah. Laura, the report clearly reflects the views of many leading experts in the fields of energy, energy use and climate adaption. How do you work with such a prestigious group of people to identify the key issues and topics and, and get their consensus? I think part of um, working with such a great group of experts is really what makes my job so fun and amazing <laughs> and why I love what I do and um, so I think the key thing really is to make sure we have a comprehensive analysis of the issues at hand so so what was really exciting about this report is that we had experts from around the world contributing so it wasn't just a UK focus report it's really relevant globally and um, so the first thing we set about doing was understanding what we wanted the report to cover because obviously it's such a big topic we could have gone in so many different directions and that we had to really make sure that me and Tim both understood what the scope was and start to identify those experts who we could reach out to Um, and then we split up the workload it sounds really simple Um, but we split up the workload sometimes it was a one-on-one conversation with either myself or Tim to gather information with these fantastic individuals or um, we invited them to write a section based on their expertise so we had really a collaborative approach to writing the report Um, but I think one of the basic things when I write in any report is to make sure we had um, a a data-driven approach so we had a comprehensive literature review to provide a solid foundation. So when we were dealing with complex issues, we understood the topics. Um, This was particularly important for me um, because obviously I was new to it. Tim's an expert um, and I needed to get up to speed pretty quickly. Um, But thankfully, you know, Tim is just very knowledgeable and very patient and very kind and took the time to bring me up to speed with a lot of the topics. We we were open to new ideas and suggestions from our contributors so we can really understand their research, their experiences, their observations. So we had a platform where everyone was valued and we were transparent and inclusive in what we were doing. In terms of finding our fantastic group of experts, um, we both reached into our networks to find stories of how companies were adapting to warmer temperatures. We spent a lot of time researching, doing things like listening to the relevant podcasts and webinars and then reaching (laughs) out to those experts and talking to them to get more details. Um, So in the report, we have a big case study on what happened in Canada in the 2021 heat dome. Um, and how that impacted people and what the local governments are doing to react to that. And a lot of the 
um, contributions we got for that section came from listening to a webinar and then we just reached out to those people and say, yeah. saying well, this is really interesting can you expand on this and what what do you mean by that that and it gave us a better understanding of the issues so yeah for the report it really helped that we had this clear plan of who we wanted to talk to and which one of us was the lead author on it who was contributing to those bits and what those deadlines were and I think that's really important. It sounds really boring, but it's a really important bit, I think, of report writing because we could confidently go off and talk to our contributors and, and get on with writing, knowing that we had a clear plan on what the expectations are and people just knew what, what, what was going on and we weren't being yeah. back and forth being like, oh, um, I think the date's this or that. I think it needs to be done by that time. Um, I guess culture of respect, open communication, evidence-based, as you know, are the solid groundworks of a successful report um, and building that consensus. Um, and I guess also I just want to really say, I think I may have said it already, how thankful I am to each and every single one of them because it was a lot of effort, a lot of time committed, um, and I don't think we would have had the impact with the report that we've had if it wasn't for each of them. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it definitely helps, doesn't it, when you can bring a community like that together, especially an international community, as you've got with this report, um, and be able to uh, to find common ground so that you, it, it gives strength to the arguments and to the recommendations of the report, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Now you you touched on uh, there, Tim, about about storms and bad weather, and and only a week ago we saw the impact of Storm Babbitt on on the British Isles and flash flooding. Certainly, where I am in Lincolnshire um, w- was quite severe. Elsewhere around the globe, we're, we're also witnessing these extremes of and prolonged heat waves. I think most of our listeners will be well aware of the societal impact that these events are having, Tim. But but how does this uh, affect industry you know what what cost is it having on manufacturing for example yeah so um there there are basically two elements to that helen um the first element is is the the sort of sharp element as it were and that's the issue of safety so um you, you know uh, ultimately um our prime concern has to be for the safety of 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 Industrial plant equipment and and the uh, the, the workforce uh, that are that are operating the, the facilities. Yeah. Um. And and then the second in, in element, which is which is related to the first, is is the issue of productivity and the implications that that has for uh, local and national and global economies. So um, maybe the best thing is for me to sort of take those two in series and, and highlight the linkage between the two. Yeah. So on the safety side, there are two dimensions to that. One is this constant increase in the seasonal ambient temperature. And then the other is this um, you know, future pro- projection that we're going to see um, in, in many, many regions around the world, an increase in the um, intensity of heat waves, so the the temperatures to which they go, but not only that, not not, not only that sort of peak temperature uh, being an issue, but also the fact that heat waves are going to be more prolonged and more frequent. Yeah. 
Yeah. So you, within within the industrial setting, clearly we need to we need to uh, be able to cope with that both at a safety level and a and a productivity level. So within safety, um, if you think about any industrial facility, be it a, a factory or something much bigger, an oil an oil refinery, for example, a gas processing plant. There's a, a plethora of um, of processes and, and 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 vessels and machinery that are affected by heat, and and in particular by those um, extremes that will be experienced in in high temperature heat waves. And this can lead clearly to the sort of overheating of um, of equipment, machinery, uh, and uh, you know, pipe work and things like this uh, that can lead to either you know to the spontaneous outbreak of fires. If you think of electrical equipment, electrical yeah, uh, cabinets getting getting hot, and the you know they they can can lead to uh, can can lead to fires in factories and and within plant. But of course, if you've got pressure vessels involved in the process, then these pressure vessels will um, will uh, overpressurize more readily than at lower temperatures. So this 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 then means that um, you know pressure release systems come into play, and if if there are hot gases associated with those, then you know there are risks for the workforce working around the the, the facility um, in terms of you know being impinged and impacted by those. That, then of course there's also the general question about the, the sort of the environmental in, impact of what's being released, both in terms of its effect on on the workers and and the local environment. Um, if you think about feedstock materials or finished products, you know, depending on what the way these are stored, these have been known to spontaneously combust yeah. during extreme heat waves and, and again start fires because you know certain things reach that critical flashpoint temperature and 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 um, ignite and um, you know that that's that's an area that um, causes some considerable safety concern. Because if you're in a in an enclosed factory environment within a building, then you've got all that machinery producing a lot of heat, which again can can have implications for the safety of the process. And um, you know, for example, in a mining environment, a very closed environment, the um, the high temperature combined with the friction heat that's generated, for example, on pulleys and belts and um, and conveyor systems that are that are moving the rock around the mine can lead again to the outbreak of fire. So lots of safety issues that are our sort of primary concern when temperatures rise within plant. And of course, you know, the impacts of any of those um, safety incidents on the uh, on the performance of the plant can be quite significant. So yeah. plant plant can be um, severely damaged, they can be temporarily shut, um, or, or indeed they can be shut down for prolonged periods as a result of the damage that occurs from those fires or or um, or the impact of um, a serious accident with uh, with an, a member of the work work team. So, you know, there, there's implications. There are the safety implications per se, but there's also those impl- implications then on productivity. So, so then coming on to productivity, there's the area that Laura explored um, in, in a great amount of detail, which was um, you know the impacts of these temperatures on on the work. Force on the uh, on on the workers in in the factory or or around the plant, and and the way in which this can affect their product productivity. Um, but of course, the equipment um, within the, within the plant um, will change its performance. Yeah. So 
you know, even if it doesn't reach those safety thresholds where, where, you know, the safety becomes an issue, the performance of the process, the chemical process or the mechanical process will be impacted by extreme temperatures and indeed year round by changes in seasonal temperatures. And this can, can affect the, you know, production rates, production volumes, in all kinds of manufactured and um, and and you know broader process plants, so so you know there are these issues around uh, productivity. Now, once these productivity issues become significant, then clearly that impacts on the local economy. Yeah. It's affecting you know the the the, um, the the performance, the economic performance of the um, of the business, uh, and that can scale up. Depending on the the scale of the industry, that can scale up to have national and even international impacts on sort of the global economy, national economies, and and that's very much the case in the developed developed world, the fully you know mature economy world of of um, the UK, United States, etc. This is a global north, as we call it now, and um, and the developing economies in the global south are relying on a broad range of industries to um, to help pull their economies out of poverty and uh, and um lead to uh, lead to development meeting development goals so okay. absolutely critical that we we get that right now you asked about costs very very difficult as you can imagine <laughs> yeah of course uh, to, to pin down exact costs and of course you know there's more work being done as i said initially there, there's been hardly any work done on just the sort of engineering and technical aspects around what we have to do, let alone the economic and social issues that implications that all of this has in terms of you know the impact on industry. But broadly speaking, um, the sort of global cumulative losses, um, for example, there is one piece of work that showed that between 1992 and 2013, so a little out of date, but still relevant. Uh, because the situation has simply got worse, you know the the, the global economic uh, cumulative losses can be anywhere, you know, from heat extremes. Yeah. Um, the global impact of of temperature excursions excursions beyond what might be expected, you know, somewhere between five and twenty nine trillion US dollars. Wow. Now I know that's a big range, but if we're at the bottom of the wet range, five trillion is a pretty big number. And if we're at the top of the range, you know, touching thirty trillion is is enormous. Um, and within that, there's there's a there's a real big issue around disparity because what we find is that within the you know what's now called the global north, the impact on GDP is relatively low. Um, you know, one estimate is around one and a half percent of impact on GDP from from these sort of heat extremes, whereas in in the global south, in the developing economies of the world, it's closer to seven yeah. percent. The impact on you know the GDP loss. Now, this will only increase in in future, and those disparities will will widen simply because those countries don't have the capacity uh, necessarily to undertake the adaptations that are needed and the building of their capacity for resilience. Yes, um, to be undertaken. So that's one one. Uh, kind of, um, if you like, sort of broad global view. Now, just just drilling down a little bit into some areas that people may not have thought about, but you know, this has a huge impact on on insurance losses, for example. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, we've already seen within the within the insurance se- sector, and they've been thinking about this for some time. 
um, you know, the impact that flooding has um, and increased storminess is having on, you know, on their industry and, and what that means in terms of the sort of premiums they have to charge and the um, and whether they take on um, what they might consider high risk scenarios or not. Um, and, you know, just looking at the heat related losses that are becoming more acute, and we've certainly seen that in recent years, you know, insured losses in the five-year period up to 2022 were estimated at around 46 billion US dollars globally. Mm. Um, and that uh, that was up from 30 billion in the previous five-year period. So you know, as, as we see these, um, you know, the more frequent and prolonged and higher temperature heat waves uh, occurring over time, these losses, these losses simply go up. Mm. Um, so, you know, the economic, the, the sort of the costs and then the translation of that into the sort of the the broader economy are you know are quite significant and are set to become even more significant. Yeah, I mean, just that cost that you described. I mean, it's it's beyond imagining, even now, that f- amount of of money uh, in terms of of the losses associated with with industry and and the failure of of industry and its supply chain to be able to to produce goods uh, i mean it's just beyond imagining really isn't it <laughs> and it's only set to get worse absolutely absolutely and it, and it kind of underscores the importance of um of, of you know this broad range this broad industrial base that we find in you know, developed and and uh, Developing economies around around the world, the, the you know the importance of that yeah. with, with, that sits within their economies and the global economy, um, and certainly you know all the projections um, into in, into the decade you know the years and decades ahead are that these heat waves are going to become more significant uh, in the sort of suite, if you like, of climate change impacts. With increased temperatures in the workplace, Laura, companies are, are really having to seriously consider the way that people work. How are companies addressing this problem and what methods and tools can they use to ensure the safety of their workforce? Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting question. And I think what a lot of people are starting to understand is how heat is impacting us on the way we work and the way we function in society. So um, when we were writing a lot of this report, it was actually during the 2022 summer heat waves in the UK. And um, I remember thinking at the time just how timely it was that I was writing a section called Too Hot to Work, Too Hot to Think. Um, and, and a bit ironic. Um, I'm just going to go into a bit about how and why heat impacts us, because I think that's important to la- lay the groundwork into why we need to be doing things. Heat particularly impacts the already vulnerable groups, so elderly, pregnant people, um, but it affects us all. We start to sweat, which cools us on evaporation, but eventually we could get heat stress um, when this mechanism of controlling our internal body temperature starts to fail and we just can't shed that excess heat. And then when that happens, we start to see our heart rates increase, our core temperature increase, and we find it really difficult to concentrate. We may start to feel unwell. We may faint. Um, You can start to see symptoms of dehydration. And then 
at the extreme end start to see heat stroke and heat exhaustion occur and then on top of all this when it's hot and we're hot we have an increased susceptibility to minor injuries and illnesses yeah. as we lose concentration we take on increased risks so maybe it's really hot and I don't want to wear my big thick personal protective equipment properly because I'm trying to keep cool so you're putting yourself at risk I'm not saying that always happens but there is that risk and people make mistakes sure we lack the opportunities as well to recuperate overnight so um, if the temperatures stay hot overnight our sleep is impacted and sleep deprivation starts to take hold so for example between May and September 2022 um, we had several heat waves across Europe so yeah. an estimated 61,000 people die as an either a direct consequence of the heat itself or because of complications yeah. wow. due to underlying health conditions. And 56% of these were women and more than half were over the age of 80. So again, these vulnerable groups particularly impacted. And then it's not just our physical health. Um, I'm very keen to emphasize the impact on our mental health and well-being. Um, So, as I said already, we disrupt sleep patterns. People are more irritable. Our cognitive function decreases um, and we can see psychological distress and anxiety in individuals. Extreme weather events can foster a feeling of helplessness and a lack of control on our environments. Um, And then physical activity, which we, we know is great for our physical health um, but also has an immense uh, impact on our um, mental health and well-being but as the temperatures rise we can't get outside maybe to do walking or running or exercising um, and yeah. so our engagement there can reduce also to emphasize that medications taken to help us with these mental health conditions really start to disrupt can disrupt the body's temperature regulation which can prove fatal so in the 2021 canadian heat dome those with schizophrenia had a three times higher risk of dying wow and then when you look at the unhoused community um in london recent research has found that the hospitalization risk for london's unhoused was 35% more likely when temperatures exceeded 25 degrees compared to 6 degrees. So then to bring it back to industry, it poses a serious risk to those working outdoors in the sun for long hours. Occupations that involve greater physical exertion, like heavy lifting, manual labour, are more likely to be affected as they're more likely to become exhausted faster metabolize heat less effectively under strain and again like i said at the beginning jobs that necessitate necessitate workers to wear heavy clothing and personal protective equipment are also more likely to be affected by heat stress to look at the canadian heat dome again we saw that workplace injuries across various sectors surged by 180 percent wow um, and that was attributed to, yeah, it's a big number. It was attributed to insufficient workplace cooling and a lack of awareness about the risks of heat. So that was a bit about why it's so important and what why companies really need to be paying attention to this issue. Yeah. 
So what can they do? In terms of administrative measures, they're really important. It can be simple as monitoring local weather conditions and effectively communicating through early warning systems and heat alerts to workers. We need to raise awareness about the harmful effects of heat on human health and, and guidance for the safety of vulnerable groups. So older people, children and pregnant people. More specifically, we need to start to see the scheduling of rests at regular intervals during work hours, promoting proper acclimatisation measures and more emphasis on observing the health status of workers. So um, providing water, electrolytes, access to emergency services and really helping our employees have the tools to adapt to those rising temperatures. It's really important for industry to consider the thermal comfort of our employees. Yeah. So um, there's a couple of ways to model that, but I think the best is the wet bowl globe temperature, which actually has uses in multiple sectors. So FIFA use it to develop guidelines for cooling breaks in games and the US military also have similar guidelines using that temperature. And what it is, is a, it's a measure of heat stress. So it takes into account the temperature, the humidity, wind speed and solar radiation. Okay. The, I find it really interesting because it, it helps to explain why when we're on holiday in shorts with a cold drink on the beach, we find it a bit more bearable than maybe that same temperature in the UK um, where yeah. the humidity is higher. So, you know, it's the humidity... And the wind speed, they play a huge role in how comfortable we feel in a temperature. What's really great about the wet bulb globe temperature is that it can be simulated and physically measured. Okay. And through dialogues between employers and employees, we can design strategies for dealing with heat stress that are tailored to the specific needs and different categories of workers and potting contingencies in the workplace so they can adapt efficiently. What's great is we're already seeing it happening in some places. So, for example, there's a case study in the report looking at the BP policy on recognising and assessing and controlling heat stress in the environment on pipelines and how they can mitigate for it. Um, They have administrative measures for hydration, cooling mechanisms. They have... um, implemented a work rest cycle for certain heat index values and those heat index values consider the location of the worker so are they inside or outside are they wearing um, thick heavy flame resistant clothing it's simple measures administrative measures that can be developed within workplaces with the right support that can really make our workers happier yeah and healthier And at the end of the day, a happy and healthy workforce works safely and they work more more productively. Um, And that's what we all want at the end of the day. Totally. And and as you were talking there, I was thinking back to my days when I I had a short stint on an oil refinery. And uh, although we didn't have many hot, hot days, being in, as you said, fire retardant overalls, donkey jacket, hard hat, big boots, the drive to remove some of those in order to 
cool down in some of the very hot locations within the refinery um, was very tempting. And so you, you're absolutely right. Being, being able to provide the right clothing and the right environment for people to work or to te- step away from that is is vitally important, isn't it, for, for industry? Yeah. And I think we didn't really go into it into the report too much, but I think there is work going on about how we can maybe get the same level of fire retardant clothing, but have it lighter. So, yeah. so have like a summer uniform almost um, <laughs> yeah. for those employees so that they're not wearing so thick clothing, but they're still getting the same protection. Yeah. I think it's a very interesting area. We didn't really go into it too much, but it's definitely something that should be looked at as a possibility. Yeah, it's, it sounds like we've got a lot to learn from from other sectors as well. You, you touched on FIFA and, and the sport organisations that are looking at how to maintain healthy environments for, for athletes. And also, I, I guess, where we can learn a lot from uh, a Formula One with flame retardant clothing and, and things like that, that have to be lightweight in, in order to take part in, in the race. So, there's an awful lot. I think we can go much further, can't we, to to look at how other industries are coping in the, these environments and apply those to our, mm. certainly to our heavy engineering community. Yeah, definitely. Tim, that kind of leads me on really to my next question because there, there must be some way that companies and industry can mitigate some of these extreme temperatures. I mean, but I'm guessing this is not just a case of sort of sticking some air conditioning up in a in a factory and hoping for the best. What kind of technologies are presently being developed or, or are available that that can reduce these temperatures in industrial plants? Yeah, so um, you're absolutely right. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot more than just sticking uh, some air conditioning in a in a factory. We sort of have to step back and have a have, have a rad- radical relook at how we go about providing uh, a cooling capability and capacity within within our industrial plant and, and factory buildings. One of the things I want to emphasize is that um, you know, any approach we take and any 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 route that any solution pathway that we want to put in place clearly kind of in the current context needs to be sustainable. Yeah. And and further as as part of that, it needs to be a low carbon or or preferably a, a zero carbon solution, or even a net zero solution. You know, but but preferably zero carbon solution. So you know, sticking an air conditioning um, in a it, it <laughs> into a factory um, causes us a bit of a headache around sustainability uh, and, in particular, reducing carbon emissions, particularly if we're looking at that air conditioning unit being installed in a factory in in a part of the world where you know they're, they're still heavily reliant on fossil fuel for their yeah. um, grid electricity so you know we need to step back and have a radical rethink about how we how we cool industrial plant and how we cool industrial buildings and um, that really needs us to apply you know two aspects to our thinking one we need to align ourselves with the energy hierarchy which which you know the institution developed a number of years ago now um, in which we we laid out the a decision making tree really for how we approach um, energy use starting with energy conservation so not using the energy in the first place yeah. and and um, you know working our way through passive approaches and and then through to uh, you know through ultimately to um, 
to the use of renewables. And then if we absolutely must, mitigated fossil fuels um, using sort of carbon capture and storage and stuff. So aligning our, our cooling expectations with the energy hierarchy. And then, and then second, secondly, we have to take a, a whole systems level view. So instead of thinking in silos and just looking at, you know, solving this little bit of cooling over here that's causing a headache at the moment, as a designer or as a as a plant operator, we need to we need to look, step back and look at the whole system and decide you know what is the optimum solution that is sustainable and and zero carbon for for our plant. So exploring that a little bit more, you know, if you think about any industrial site, you've got you've got the buildings and you've got the um, the equipment and plant, and um, you know, in terms of the buildings, unfortunately, industrial buildings are. Uh, you know, are not are not designed uh, in in a particularly how can I put this uh, you know s- s- sophisticated way. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, industri- I don't, don't want to be disparaging, but the, but but you know, their their design is on a on a, a kind of a a lower, more basic level than than designing, for example, a, a state of the art um, office block or you know accommodation dwelling. Yeah. Um, so industrial buildings are usually. Um, less uh, resilient to uh, heat impacts uh, simply because they you know they 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 often use dark materials so that they haven't got reflective surfaces that would help reflect the heat away from the building the solar gain away from the building they don't really consider using shade to reduce the the solar gain don't really think about the orientation of the building to the um, to the predominant breeze uh, to help use natural ventilation to to cool to cool the space. To, to sort of optimize all those passive techniques before moving on to resorting to some sort of you know some sort of mechanical process uh, system that under un, is underpinned by energy use so there's a lot that can be done around that and, and you know if you think about a typical factory it doesn't necessarily have a, a ceiling void and, and a roof space it's simply got the you know the roof and yeah. then it's the factory yeah. <laughs> floor. so the heat gain can be enormous so you know there's a lot there's a lot that can be done there you know better design of factory buildings to take into account, you know the, what what can be done passively before moving on to using mechanical process and energy intensive processes for cooling is really important. Um, and then then looking around the site to see whether there are sources of cooling that can you know that come from the industrial process that could be used. So reusing waste sources of cooling or indeed waste heat undertaking heat recovery to drive cooling. Uh, processes like uh, absorption is a good starting point. You're using natural resources that are that are nearby. So you know, if you've got a a large body of water that can be used as a heat sink, then using yeah. using that water to cool the building. If you've got an underground aquifer nearby, using that to cool the building. You know, by tapping into that. So looking for those natural resources and those waste resources again before moving on to mechanical systems that that you know are energy intensive and then of course if you do have to move on to those mechanical systems then try to trying to power them at, with low carbon or zero carbon grids um or um, local sources of renewable energy biogas for example produced from uh, waste or or farm manure or whatever you know or using more traditional renewable sources like um, solar uh, or wind to drive the um, you know to power produce the electricity to power those systems so lots there to be done to make buildings more sustainable and then with the plants themselves it's a similar 
kind of process, but slightly different in that, you know, we need potentially to think about operational changes. So the way in which we use the plant and the processes yeah. that are undertaken to help us cope with these higher temperatures. So what I'm thinking about there, of course, is we can change, um, we can change shift patterns, um, you know, so that, um, you know, the plants are not being operated at the hottest part of the day if they're, if they work, if they work on a batch process rather than a continuous process. The scope for thinking about the design of plant layout. So what you often find is that because these high temperatures haven't been an issue in the past, that plant can often be de- designed with, you know, the outlets from cooling uh, facilities impinging on other processes, so raising their temperature anyway. Right. Uh, but then when you get these extreme events becoming sort of untenable levels of heat. So thinking about the designing of the plant layout, again, in a similar way to the building, thinking about how you can use passive design approaches to um, to, to make you know to reduce the heat gain of the of the industrial plant um, the cells so you know using shading and um, and orientation of plant elements to to sort of try to maximize the use of the natural environment before before you need use cool uh, cooling and then again you know thinking about natural and waste cooling so so for example with what with waste cooling, you you think about pro, you know there are a lot of processes that that give off coolth as we might call it. Um, if you think about LNG regasification, so LNG is effectively pa- packaged in cold to bring it from wherever the L- the gas was sourced to the, wherever the gas is going to be used. Yeah, and then when you regasify the the natural the natural gas, then you know a lot of uh, very low temperature cooling. Is is given off during that regasification process. Um, so you know, capturing that, uh, co-locating plant with LNG regasification facilities enables um, industrial processes to tap into that waste cool, as it were. Heat recovery, the heat being used to uh, to drive cooling processes, and and again, you know, the use of renewables for if you're going to need electrical power. Um, so what you have to think is you have to sort of step back and think, well. Two things, really. Firstly, you know, let me have a look at this whole system. Yeah. So if I'm if I'm putting an air an air cooler on a site, you know, what what you know, I look at the whole system. Then, firstly, you know, what's the optimum orientation for that, and how how would it best how does it best fit within the um, with the the design of the plant layout so that it's not causing any difficulties for any other part of the plant or the workforce. You know, and then more broadly, you know, how can we how can we maximize the the relationship between the various plant pieces to 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 optimize the um, you know the energy use from from one plant to another. So whatever is waste to one plant can be energy to another plant. Yeah. And and then I just want to sort of make one last point there because that's a lot of things. And yeah. there's, a, there's a huge amount in the report around this. There's a, you know sustainable uh, sort of zero carbon net zero carbon cooling was a major theme of the report um there's, there's a huge amount that can be done there but um one of the points i would just want to raise which which engineers often kind of raise when you're talking about this issue and i think it's interesting just to explore for a moment is that they they typically would say uh, we typically say well you know surely we're already designing facilities in these in hot climates and, and all we have to do, so think of the Middle East, for example, yeah. or Africa. All, all we need to do is to take those designs and apply them in in the more temperate zones that are becoming hotter. Now, 
you know, the, that that seems like a logical sort of argument. <laughs> but what that misses is two two things. One, the in- economic impact of doing that, and and whether the business model will still stack up. And then the second is the fact that um, the second is the fact that the design envelope just becomes enormous. So if you if you think about okay, let's take the first one of that, the economic dimension. If you're in if you're in a Middle Eastern country and um, you simply tackle the, you know, the the temperature by increasing the amount of cooling you've got. So increasing the number of um, air cooling units or water cooling cooled units or whatever your main cooling type is, what you do is you you increase the footprint of the plant. The plant can be one and a half times larger than you would typically find in the UK or Canada, for example, and you increase the energy use dramatically of the plant. Well, that's fine if you if you're in a uh, in a Middle Eastern state that can just burn more fossil fuel, you know, because you literally got it there in the <laughs> desert around yeah. you. And, and of course, the, the labor costs in building that plant are much lower often than you would find them in a, you know, a North American, North European or, or um, you know, Japanese economy or whatever. You know, you start to ask questions then about whether the business case stacks up because all of your capital costs and operational costs are predicated on the, the the energy costs and labor costs, et cetera, within the country you're operating in. And and then, of course, the, the footprint also has um, societal issues, particularly where you've got restrictions on land use. So you can't just can't just build it half half as big again or double the size it is to cope with the additional cooling capacity required. You know, <laughs> UK planning just <laughs> would, would really struggle with that. So <laughs> So and and quite rightly so because you know we've got limited land and it's needed for a lot of other things. So it's not simply a case of transferring it. Now the other aspect is what we have to realise about climate change, particularly in the next uh, few decades as the climate transitions into something new, is that um, you know we're still going to get some very cold winters, yeah. and um, they're going you know we're still going to get severe, uh, very low temperature winters, and, as well as these extreme high temperatures. So what that does is it extends the design envelope of the plant from, say, minus 15 to plus 45 or plus 50, which is an envelope that we've just not had to design for before. Yeah. And and designing for that has huge sort of economic implications because – you know, solving those issues about how how is my how can I be ensure that my plant is going to work at minus ten or minus twelve at one time of the year, part of the year, and then it's going to have to work at forty you know forty five degrees C above at another time of the year. So you know that affects material choice of materials, safety systems, all sorts of things. So you know, and and the performance of the process itself. So that has quite a, a large economic impact. Whereas in a lot of these hotter parts of the world, they're they're hot already. And they're just going to get a little bit hotter, yeah. so or a lot hotter in some cases. But they're still the de- design envelopes still going to be between say plus thirty and plus fifty five. You know, so that you haven't got to deal with those sort of extremes of cold. So that's they're the two kind of two main issues there around how we think about how we tackle industry. It's not as simple as just transferring existing technology and design pro- 
uh, processes from one part of the world to another. Yeah, we've, we've certainly got to learn, haven't we, about about the locale that we're in and understand, as you rightly say, the system in which that business, that company or factory is going to operate in and understand uh, the envir- that environment before we can start to to just drop pieces of technology in with, without any regard. Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right, Helen. I mean, it's that whole systems level approach where, you, you, you know, we as engineers have a terrible habit of just diving straight into the, you know, the technical aspects sure. and the calculations and you know, without thinking about, the entire ecosystem that our our solution sits within. So, you know, the the whole landscape of, you know, the policy landscape, the social landscape, the cultural landscape, the natural landscape, everything that surrounds and impacts on that solution and that solution impacts upon. And that's what I mean by and and you were meaning there by a whole systems level approach. Yeah. And it's that that that's that's the only way we're going to tackle this problem. Yeah, and it, it sounds to me as well, Tim, that the um, the thing that came to mind when you were talking about those really big extremes of of cold temperature and hot temperature, we're going to have to learn a lot from other technical industries, aren't we? For, for example, like the space industry, who have to deal with those real extremes of temperature yes. in space. That there's a lot that we as engineers can learn from other industries to to try and bring those down to kind of a terrestrial level i suppose yeah yeah absolutely and and you know the the the, the transfer of knowledge from one sector to another is is again an, another key role for the institution we have a memberships that work across lots of different sectors and and getting together and exploring how we can take solutions from one sector and and use them in another sector without having to reinvent the wheel is um you know is 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 a really a core, sort of core part of of um you know developing a successful outcome to to meeting these challenges Laura, within the report, you have identified some critical steps and actions that need to be taken to manage these extreme climate events while enabling industry to keep up with demand. What recommendations have you made to policymakers and government in this regard? And how do you see the IMAC's work as a leading voice in policy galvanising political change? We made a number of recommendations in the report. So we had a set focus at industry um, and what they need to do to develop and implement adaptation plans for buildings, people, equipment and plants. We had a set towards the engineering profession, really calling on engineers to help industry prepare for the impacts of increased temperatures. A set aimed at academia and skills development bodies to ensure basic climate change knowledge is taught at every level and that the curriculum starts to incorporate impacts of rising temperatures, approaches to adaptation, principles of net zero design, resilience, circular economy. But I think the big set was rightly aimed at government policymakers around the world and we emphasised the need to recognise the potential productivity impacts of higher ambient temperatures and extreme heats on industry because these sectors underpin our national and local economic well-being. So we really need to see that support from governments to help industry adapt to make sure that we are staying at the same productivity levels because we are going to need to adapt to these new temperatures. It's not just a UK problem. This is a global problem. So 
The recommendations looked at perhaps raising awareness of the projected heat-related impacts of climate change on industrial assets and buildings, and really asking governments and policymakers to encourage owners, developers, financiers, lenders, and those involved with the design and construction to take on urgent action on adaptation. We think the planning policy should consider the evaluation of existing planning requirements for new builds and retrofits to reduce exposure to climate change induced heat impacts and make sure that the buildings we're building now and the buildings we have are fit for the future environment. I think it's really important that any building we're currently building whether it's an industrial building or it's a house, we've, we're considering we want this house to be here for 30 years. Using historical data isn't necessarily going to be useful because our climate is changing so rapidly. We need to be using those the future climate projection to say in 30, 40, 50 years, this is going to be the temperature and we're going to see this many hot days extreme hot days, this many rainfall days. So that's designed for that and not necessarily designed for now. Yeah. So it was really important that we we urged in the report that there's a review and update of building codes and regulations to ensure that they are relevant for higher ambient temperatures. Um, and we were really happy actually to see in the National Infrastructures Commission's second National Infrastructure Assessment bit of a tongue twister and um, which was published um this month that there was a recommendation that government should work with the relevant standard bodies to identify and update core technical engineering standards to factor in future climate change and that's really that was really great to see yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> the recommendation in our report also emphasized the development of an energy policy vision for industrial cooling that's not just defined by electricity so we're not just saying plug in an air conditioning unit all the time but based on the fact that the provision can often be better achieved by thinking thermally and utilising thermal resources. We have also urged governments to encourage high hazard industry regulators to mandate operator assessments of extreme heat risks alongside other climate threats within their licence to operate application and carry out those gap analysis between the original design specifications and the more recent future climate projections. We've been in touch with the Environment Agency on this and progress is being made. Um, but it, it is really important that the climate projections are easily accessible, usable and relevant to industry. There's no point if, it, if they can't use it. Uh, we need to have that data accessible. Yeah, sure. um, so again, in the second National Infrastructure Assessment, there was a recommendation that the Met Office infrastructure operators and a appropriate regulators should work together to develop an accessible interface for asset owners to use relevant climate data. So again, we're moving in the right direction there. And it's really great to see that a couple of the, the recommendations are already being picked up, which is, yeah. I guess, fantastic. As for the institution, as you know, we represent a global community of over 110,000 engineers across diverse sectors. So it's really put us in this unique position to really facilitate the collaboration amongst industry, academia, governments, 
and leveraging the collective knowledge and expertise of our fantastic membership. Yeah. So specifically, our commitment to addressing climate challenges is exemplified by this report, if I do say so myself, <laughs> feels like a pat on my back. Uh, but I think what was great about it was that we weren't limiting it to a regional context. The recommendations are relevant globally and it is on us as well to make sure these messages are translated into actionable initiatives and engaging with stakeholders. So like I said, we've already seen it here in the UK, but we need to make sure it's implemented and picked up beyond just the UK. So beyond the report, we had a series of blogs over the summer looking at different aspects of heat. In September, we convened a highly successful international conference workshop on climate adaptation and resilience, which brought together civil servants, industry leaders, researchers from various corners of the world to discuss adaptation and resilience strategies in the face of not just heat waves and droughts, but pluvial and fluvial flooding and sea level rising and coastal flooding. So we had participants from France, India, Japan and Kenya and we had a really vibrant and great discussion looking at future research angles. And by having these global participants, it meant that when we were talking about future work, future research that could be picked up by the participants of the conference, everything had a global angle to it. Yeah. So it meant that, again, the solutions that were being proposed at that workshop and conference weren't just UK-centric, which I think is really great. And we're looking to hopefully do a repeat of that at some point in the future. So, yes, progress is evident. Um, lots of work remains. We were pleased to see um, the Environmental Audit Select Committee in the UK House of Commons launched an inquiry um, in September, I think it was, into heat resilience and sustainable cooling. As an institution, we remain committed to being actively engaged in this dialogue and um, advocating for the review of planning policies, the updating of standards and the establishment of energy policy standards for in industrial cooling. So we're going to continue to be involved in that dialogue. At the core of our mission is the development and training of engineers so we are looking at um, making sure engineers globally are equipped with the foundational principles of net zero emissions circular economy principles sustainable design which means we can then really exemplify the impact of engineers in contributing to this a sustainable resilient world so yeah that's on our radar something we're going to be implementing and looking at in the next couple of months is how we can incorporate those into our degree programs. Yeah, I mean, you, that last point you touched on uh, is vitally important. And and it comes back to something you said right at the start of that, which was that, that, that this is not just about solving a problem right now. We're already in a crisis, aren't we? This, this is about making sure that we are fit for purpose for the next 50 years, next 100 years, if possible. And planning ahead um, is what engineers are very good at. Uh, they, the, you know, the opportunities to to embed this, not just into our educational system, but to help that to drive change within the political circles is going to be key to ensuring that we we provide a, a safe and fit environment for 
people to not just working but live in as well absolutely and i think often you hear people say adaptation is is the less cool part of mitigation but i think you need both we absolutely should be looking at mitigating and limiting the temperature increase as much as possible but we need to be realistic if we just look in the uk and stay uk focused the temperatures here have already changed so much that we can't ignore it anymore we really need to see an increased focus on adaptation and they go hand in hand you can't do one thing to adapt to climate change that could then make the mitigation harder yeah so if everyone's to install inefficient air conditioning units, that's not going to help the fact that then we've got to mitigate even more. So the challenge becomes even greater, which means it becomes a bit of a vicious cycle. Um, yeah. So we really need to get both sides of the coin talking a bit more and having that emphasis on, I guess it's a pragmatic approach, really. It's a, yeah. we, we are where we are. This is the situation. Let's try not to make it worse, but let's acknowledge that it's not great and do something about it yeah. and think for the future rather than just be reactive all the time. I, I think that's that's a really great point to make, Laura, and, and something that we as an engineering community really need to get behind. That that leads me on to, to another question in terms of, of the technical challenges we are going to face and what the engineering community, as you rightly said, we're always trying to find solutions to these problems. So what kind of technologies are we going to see develop over the coming years? Clearly, there's an awful lot of work to be done to try and improve on those. So how is that going to help us kind of reduce or capture or reuse heat? And, and how is that going to trickle down into to wider society you know that that residential properties for example could use and learn the lessons from manufacturing yeah so there's a lot going on helen <laughs> there's a huge going on. we probably need so, another podcast for that right <laughs> yeah, yeah but um, let me just give you sort of a flavor i mean i i i want to say straight out of out of the gate though that you know we already have a lot of um what we need to sort of start tackling this situation without developing you know more technologies and more more approaches the key is really about this issue that we were just talking about about taking a systems level view and um and and transferring knowledge from one sector to another so that's the first thing i want to say but because you know we again as engineers we tend to like to look for the sort of the shiny new um you know sexy stuff that kind of allows us to get very innovative, whereas there's a lot that needs to be done around being innovative in just in terms of transferring knowledge from one sector to another and, yeah. and, and adjusting it for that for that new sector. So that's that's my first point. But but coming on to the shiny new <laughs> sexy stuff, I mean the the first the first one that comes to mind, of course, is um, is artificial intelligence and the, the you know the role that that can play in helping us integrate. And optimize, you know, cooling systems and their performance. You know, there's a lot there that that will help us in sort of predicting our cooling needs, adjusting operations in real time, anticipating issues, and identifying areas where where efficiency can be improved. There's a, yeah. you know, there's a huge amount that artificial intelligence will bring to that. And and I find more and more as I go to adaptation focused events and discussions and meetings 
you know, the, the, the role that artificial intelligence can play is just coming up over and over again. So yeah. uh, there's a lot, there's a lot certainly that we can do there. And that will help also potentially with sort of knowledge transfer from one sector to another. You know, nice, sexy things in, in cooling are things like radiative cooling, which involves sort of special materials that, are, that emit thermal radiation, in particular spectra. Right. Um, and, you know, can help produce new ways of, of developing cooling. So just sort of imagine a solar panel, solar thermal panel in sort of reverse. But instead of radiating heat into the local environment, it's radiating across a particular light spectrum into space. Okay. So using space to cool to cool the process effectively. Um, you know, that, that's nice and sexy and exciting and shiny <laughs> and new. And yeah. uh, there's some really good work going on in that. And, it, you know, it's been proven at small scale, uh, at very small scale, labor- you know, laboratory and sort of pi- very small pilot scale. But, you know, a lot of interesting, innovative work that you know, to be done there. How exciting is that? You've got... Uh, Things like phase change materials, they've been around for a while, but there's still a lot of work to be done on phase change materials. So, yeah. you know, materials that can, uh, you, you know, very cool spaces in the day as a result of uh, sort of abs- absorbing uh, cool in the night. You know, there's a there's a lot of potential for building that into into buildings and, and plants. So, you know, so there's a there's good work to be done around that. There's there's the issue of uh, or, or the, the the opportunity of magnetic refrigeration okay. uh, again that's a new area it's prom- promising alternative to the sort of traditional vapor compression refrigeration that we currently use yeah the potential you know they've got potential to be more energy efficient environmentally friendly you know there's a lot of work going on on dehumidification technologies that can be used to um, to provide cooling reversible heat pumps these these kind of devices and 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 a lot focused on on starting to build sort of hybrid and multimodal cooling systems. So, you know, not just thinking about a cooling system that's, that's composed of one element, but bringing together a a group of technologies that work synergetically together to sort of, you know, produce a a more flexible cooling system. Yeah. So, you know, that sort of brings together in many cases, passive cooling with um, mechanical, more energy intensive cooling. So yeah, there's a huge range to go, and like you say, I mean, this could that could literally be a podcast of its own. So probably, probably that'll that'll do for a starter for ten there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it sounds fascinating, and it's certainly um, as you've touched on already, it's it's bringing together different aspects of engineering, particularly materials. I mean, that's where we're we're really going to find some fantastic solutions, I think, isn't it? In in terms of how we can store and capture and then reuse this the waste heat or or, or the cold yes. to be able yeah. to manage the the thermal environment we're in I, that sounds really exciting to me yeah yeah and uh yeah yeah more i i i'm i'm more turned on by radiative cooling and artificial intelligence <laughs> yeah. every engineer has their own uh, particular uh, <laughs> nuanced passions yeah absolutely well i'm i'm going to be trying to do my best i'm i'm refurbishing a, a house uh, which is going to include solar and uh, air source heat pumps and and other technologies to try and mitigate the amount of of heat we use and the energy we use as well so so hopefully i can incorporate some of these these new technologies tim that you're referring to that would be really exciting from my point of view 
Yeah, and and uh, you know, do make sure that you um, you consider what your future cooling needs are going to be because uh, most people are not doing it at the moment. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, have a look at have a look at the climate change predictions for wherever you are, and um, and what sort of temperatures you're likely to see in the future, and and do, do make sure because at the moment cooling is uh, in in countries like the UK is the sort of Cinderella and and is an afterthought, whereas um, you know increasingly. It, cooling is going to become more important than the heating element. I will bear that in mind as I start the process of, uh, <laughs> of converting this rather old house into into a new technology-driven property. So thanks, thanks for that, Tim. I will bear that in mind. Thank you for sharing the details of this report, which we'll put into the uh, to the notes on the podcast. Um, and I'm, I'm so pleased to hear that the report has had already had a significant impact here in the UK. And let's hope that it's, uh, it's taken to heart by many communities across the world, because I think this, this is fundamental to us as an engineering community driving change. So thank you to both of you for, for talking to me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. That's all for this month. In next month's episode, we will be following on from our Climate Adaption podcast to talk about the global issues of energy use and how engineers around the world are addressing the problem. Members of the institution working in the energy sector in China and India discuss the differences between the East and West's response to climate change and what actions these two countries are taking to mitigate over-reliance on unsustainable energy sources across their vast land masses. You've been listening to Impulse to Innovation, the Institution of Mechanical Engineers podcast. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to share any news or any feedback with us, then please email us podcast at imeki.org. All the information on this episode can be found in the episode notes. 